But as we turn to the Word, I want to um, invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10, familiar passage of Scripture. I preach about this quite often. But I find that as I reflect on Scripture, God con continues to teach me. You can go to the same Scripture uh, one year, go back the next year, come back and find that you missed something there before. It's a wonderful gift of Scripture, the way it will inform us and teach us. It's a, it has this unique way of speaking to us in different seasons of our lives. And, and again, I'm choosing a familiar Scripture that the temptation in the church is, we've heard it before, I trust this evening that by God's Spirit and His leading, we would hear it with fresh ears. So I invite you to stand, and I'm going to read the Scripture, after which I will offer that this is the Word of the Lord to which you will respond. Thanks be to God. And then I will pray, and you may be seated. Luke chapter 10, reading from 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Now, let me just comment there for a second. Do this and you will live. Love the Lord with the totality of your being and your neighbor as yourself. Do that and you'll have eternal life. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Tell me who's in so I don't know, I don't love unnecessary people. <laughs> Tell me who, who's on the inside so that I can just focus my attention on affection to those or on the inside. Tell me, define for me the boundaries of the neighbor. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side and so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his do own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The word of the Lord. Father God, we are indeed thankful for your word. We thank you that you haven't left us without that which gives us life and a means to live out our Christian faith. We thank you not only for the gift of the word, but we thank you for the gift of your spirit. As has already been shared from this very platform that you are here with your church, you are present with us. We do not serve a disconnected or a distant God, but a God who by his spirit embodies the praises of his people. We do not only thank you for the word and we do not only thank you for the gift of your spirit, but I thank you tonight for the church of God. 
that in moments like this, on nights like this, we are reminded of the beauty of the church of God that extends beyond denominationalism, that extends beyond race, that extends beyond boundaries and cultures and age and, and, and economic status, but a church that is unified by the gracious sacrifice of Jesus Christ himself. We are brothers and sisters of the same living God. For this we give you thanks. Grant us discernment to appreciate that which you have given us, which no one else can. A family of faith. So that we would not have to live our lives simply by ourselves. Grant us tonight eyes to see the hope that you have for the church. Father, many people are disenfranchised. Many people are disconnected from the church. Many people are saying, I don't see any purpose. But may you renew tonight within us a deep appreciation for the gift of the church to our personal lives. For it is through the gift of this church and churches like this throughout history that many people have come to know the freedom that Jesus Christ can offer. It is through the ministry of the church that many people have been healed through the power of your Holy Spirit. It is through the ministry of the church church that people across this globe has heard of that wonderful Savior who while we were yet sinners died in our place so that we may live. It is this church in all that it is, its highs and its lows, its brokenness and its flaws that you have chosen to reveal your grace and your mercy. May we give you thanks for the church that is gathered here tonight. And may we see one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen. You may be seated. You know, that prayer was the message. I'm done. I'm done. It doesn't get better than that. It's, it's only, it's only a, a slow road down, like from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's just downhill from there. <laughs> Hopefully not. This parable is an interesting parable, and one commentator that I read as I was going back to it yet again, I preach on this probably every two or three months, uh, he cautioned me, he said, you know, be careful to preach on this because the phrase Good Samaritan itself has become ubiquitous with one who helps out another in need. Everybody, you know, everybody uses the phrase. You don't have to be Christian to know what Good Samaritan means. And so... I took his caution to heart because I think that when you read the scripture, uh, if you're like me, you presume you know where it's going, Stu. I think God is saying a few things to us. One, don't miss people and be nice and help them. It seems to be the point of the story and to the greater extent it is. But when you lean into Jesus' parables a little bit, I love the way he tells stories. You learn so much that you didn't first see. In fact, if I can offer this to you as a way of studying the Scripture, don't go fast. You know, some people say, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. Okay, that's okay. That's fine. I suggest you just pace yourself because the Word of God has this unique ability to want to slow us down to hear what it's actually saying. And sometimes when we go too fast, we miss it. And so Jesus tells parables in a way to kind of make you go, huh? What, what are you after? What are you trying to teach us? A familiar story perhaps to many here who have heard this story told probably from Sunday school days and yet this evening I trust not just through my own thought and reflection that somehow God would speak words of life to the church gathered here this evening. One of the things that I try to do as I prepare sermons is to ask myself the question, 
What did it mean then before I answer the question what it might mean now? You know, none of us read a novel from the center page backward and then pretend that we know what the story is about. And yet with Scripture, we seem, and this seems to happen all the time. This is not even my message, just free of charge, okay, because I'm gracious. But yet in the church, we seem to build theologies on bits and pieces. Now, I want to suggest to you that I'm not the one that grasps it all. I'm not pretending that I'm the expert in the room. But I want to suggest this to you. First of all, every Christian these days needs to be grounded in the Word of God. They need to commit themselves to a group where they can learn the Scriptures from beginning to end. They need to be in the company of those who have spent time in the Word so that they would grow. And they ought not to rely just on pastors like me in a 40-minute sound clip on a Sunday morning to teach you everything about the Bible. I also want to say this. Should I go there? The Internet is great. I listen to some good podcasts. Boy, I get, I get juiced up on some of those preachers, don't you? I mean, they're just great. You can listen to guys from across the world, and you can learn a great amount of things. But nothing replaces, nothing replaces your personal connection with this word that so can change lives. And so I encourage you. If you're sitting here and you're saying, you know, uh, you know I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know which church you're coming from. I know at this church they have fantastic preachers. But if you say, oh, no, pastor didn't do it for me on that Sunday. Oh, man. Uh, maybe you should get some other meals during the week. Maybe you should make the Word of God a priority in your life again. And if I can be very honest with you, we need help to do it well. I didn't mean to speak on this. But I feel it important. I'm hearing more and more people say things about the Bible that just is not right. And we are building all kinds of philosophies on this, and it is hurting the witness of the church. So I encourage you to find yourself a Bible-believing church. One's right here. Global kingdoms right across the way. Connect to a church that teaches the Bible and provides you opportunities to learn in community with one another. One of the best ways to learn the Scripture is not just in your lonesome, but in community with one another. Anyway, free of charge. I'm done now, and I only have two pages, so praise God. Here we go. Context. Israel was called of God to be a means of making him known to the world. From the calling of Abraham, who would be considered to be the father of Israel's faith, God informed him that he would be the father of a people who would exist to do what? To bless other nations. God chose Israel for purpose. He set them aside as in the desert. He named them at Mount Sinai a holy nation and a royal priesthood so that they would fulfill the promises of God in the world. Yet God's choosing of Israel was not simply that they would enjoy his favor but that God's favor may be bestowed upon all nations through them. As we, I preached on Sunday morning, if you were here, I preached on the story of Jonah. One story that I think, you know, you know you're a good story when you make it to VeggieTales. You know, it's got everything in it. Fantastical fishes and belly revivals and all the rest of it. But I suggested to you that Israel like Jonah, 
refused to be gracious unto other nations, and they failed in their responsibility to be a light unto those nations as God has always intended. The funny thing about being chosen is it can go to your head. You know, you tell your kid enough times in his life he's special. <laughs> he's going to expect that everybody says that to him. And then welcome to the real world. You see, Israel was set apart, but their set apart was not simply so that they could be pristine and look at me, <laughs> but that through them, the God of all creation would draw all men unto himself. And so, Israel failed on many occasions to be what God has called them to be. And here in our scripture this evening, we find a representative of Israel. Someone who is a law expert, the scripture says. Now what we understand by that is this, that he is acquainted with the Torah, the Old Testament as we know it today. You probably heard this because you have good preachers here, but I'll tell for those who may not have heard this, that when you were trained in the rabbinic school, you were taught to memorize Scripture so that if someone said, what does Deuteronomy 6, 5 say? You would say, this is what it says. If someone quoted from one of the minor, the obscure prophets and just gave you a reference, you would know what the prophets said. These were men acquainted with the Scripture. It should scare us a little bit because I have met many Christians over the years. They can quote Scripture better than me. They can pull references out better than me. But when I examine their lives, when I look at their lives in relationship to other people, I go, something's off. I love God, but... Mm. You know, uh, th th there's a sense in which just knowing the Scripture doesn't necessarily mean that you live the way you ought to live. And so, a law expert. We can spend hours talking about his motives. The Scripture doesn't really make it clear, so that would just be speculation. All that to say this, he approaches Jesus with a question. What must I do to make it to eternal life? What must I do to get in? And Jesus, like any good rabbi, responds with a question. Have you ever heard how good teachers teach? They ask you a question. They don't answer it for you. I guess the methodology is, I want you to think for yourself. And so Jesus answers his question with a question, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the expert in the law quotes the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.5. Are you still with me? Say amen. amen. And Leviticus 19.18, that to inherit eternal life, one must, and we all know this, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Come on, say it with me. And with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your as yourself. And then Jesus says, well, do that and you're good. I mean, just love Jesus with all the capacity you have. <laughs> just love God with absolutely everything that you are about. Your gifts, your graces, your strengths, your intellect, your emotions, your money. No amens. Uh, all of who you are, and once you got that right, love 
others like yourself. Woo! I'm out at that point. If I'm the law expert, I'm like, I'm done. I mean, <laughs> you know, he answered his own question in a way that seems so simple, yet so profoundly hard to do. Here's what happens, okay? Here's what happens. I find this to be more true today. We have Christians who love the first part of that verse. Really do. Oh, I love Jesus. Oh, I love him so much. <laughs> I, I even give over and above what is asked at church. I suck, am I, am I, should I stop? And you know, I, I, I love God, I love God, I love God, I love God, but oh, the relationships I have with others, they're just not working out so well. So here's the deal. God, please change them because clearly there's something wrong with them. <laughs> And then we have people disenfranchised more and more with the church who lean on the other side and they say the church doesn't do anything for people who in need. They're just self-serving. It's all about me, 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 and no matter who is struggling, who is suffering, who we encounter in the world, we just pass them by. So we don't need the church. Either perspective is wrong. Either perspective is not how you live out the Christian faith. You see, Jesus would make it very clear that you cannot have one without the other. You cannot say that you truly love God and yet you do not love your neighbor with such a Christological love, with such a self-serving love that it actually makes a difference in their lives. You cannot simply care about people without loving God. It just doesn't work out that way. Because only God gives us the ability to love as He loves us. And so, as we read this text... We sense that the calling of God and the challenge for this well-educated man is to see just how difficult and challenging it is to follow Jesus. Have you ever heard this, Pastor Lucas? Just come to Jesus and make everything fine. Oh, you'll fix your problems. You know what happens? This is more true, I think, than not. Jesus will fix problems. Nope, he does. He will meet needs. He will bring healing. He's good. You know what I find? Jesus creates a whole set of other problems. <laughs> he changes priorities. He changes values. He challenges your selfishness. He challenges your racism. Oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> he challenges your... Prejudice. He challenges your stinginess. He challenges your sinful life. You see, I want to say to you that to follow Jesus is not an easy thing. And if you're a Christian saying, I said yes to Jesus, but man, life sucks. Welcome to the club. <laughs> not because we are defined by our circumstances, but we have a hope that transcends the current circumstance. Listen. Let me not paint a grim picture. There is no better life to live than the life lived in salvation. There's no greater life to live than the life that is transformed by the grace of God. I want you to hear this. I still pinch myself that I'm standing in front of you tonight preaching because I know where I've come from. Never in a million years would I assume or presume, you know, 20 years ago that I would be speaking to such well-dressed people as you in Toronto in this particular time and yet somehow saying yes to Jesus as hard as it's been has been the best thing I've ever done with my life. 
It has been the best thing I've ever done with my life. It has been the best. You're not convinced, are you? You know, can I get an amen or an ouch? It is the best thing, the best thing I've done with my life. And so let me get back to my notes. I'm just freestyling it here with you. Jesus challenges this man, and then the man responds to him and says, Oh, well, yeah, okay. Uh, love the Lord and love neighbor, but who, who should I love? Don't you find that to be a vital question these days? Pastor, tell us. Tell us who it's okay to love. <laughs> who can come to this church? Ooh. It's a good thing I'm leaving on, on Saturday. <laughs> Tell us who's on the inside. And so Jesus responds and he tells a story. And I love Jesus' stories. Jesus' stories are very challenging. He tells of a, a man that on a treacherous road, by the way, for you geography and historical nerds, this would be appealing. Uh, a man coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, they say it's about a 17-mile journey. What is that in kilometers? Doesn't matter. Uh, descending about 3,300 feet. It's an elevation drop. So Jericho sitting about 770 feet below sea level. Uh, it wasn't an easy ascent to Jerusalem. It, it, was a, it was a long and hard walk to get there, depending on where you were coming from, in particular from Jericho. But what made the road treacherous was not just the elevation drop. In fact, it was a, no, a road known uh, to have robbers who ambushed people. And so Jesus tells of a story of a man who met that fate. He was robbed and he was beaten and he was left. And the scripture says this in the English translation, he looked half dead. And as he laid there dying, uh, two people are introduced as coming down that same road. Where they come from matters. They're coming from Jerusalem. What their titles are matters. Jesus tells good stories if you pay attention to the details. And so you have a priest coming from where? Yeah, come on, you guys got to help me out here. The, 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 the less reactive you are, the longer I preach. Okay, so you got a priest coming from where? And what would he have done in Jerusalem? Oh, I hear a lot of incorrect answers. No, I'm kidding. Here's what he would have done. You, you said it right. He's probably at Jerusalem attending to the temple at one of the feasts. That's what priests do. You know what Levites did? Levites assisted priests in their priestly duties. And so Jesus picks two people who represent Israel's very highest religious order. As two people that are coming down this road, they have just performed their religious responsibility in the most sacred place, the temple in Jerusalem. Do you know the difference between Samaritans and Jews? Just stay with me for a second. Jews believed that Jerusalem was the place that everything was going to happen. This is where Messiah was going to show up. This is where everybody must make pilgrimage to. This is where everybody must go. You know what the Samaritans believed? Remember the story of the woman at the well? They had that conversation, and then it turned into a conversation about worship. <laughs> you Jews say it's in Jerusalem, but we say it's in Mount where? Gerizim, right? So, so there's this distinction made, and yet as Jesus tells the story, he's telling a story of, of people who are coming from performing what they have been born to do. By the way, 
priests weren't assigned as priests, they were just born into the family. Some of you who come from traditional cultures know that where you're born into matters. You can't get it through marrying into it, you're just it. The class system is still alive in many places in the world, we know that. So let's think about it this way. This priest was born into it. This Levite was born into it. And as they encounter the man and they see him lying alongside the road, they don't do anything. They just pass by. They keep going. Now we are informed, educated people. We understand that the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus explains very carefully that if a priest touched anything that was unclean, He'd have to go through an awful lot of washing to be able to go back to the temple. We understand that in the back of his mind must have been this thought that I, I can't help because if I do, I get my hands dirty and I'll be in trouble. The Levite likewise, perhaps for that good reason, decides not to engage with the person because if they did, he too would have to make himself ceremonially clean. I am speculating because Jesus doesn't really say that. He kind of just leaves it up to our imagination to figure out why on earth would these two religious people that just served God in the temple pass by a man in desperate need. It seems that Jesus is making a point to Israel about what it truly means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. It seems to me that when we hear the parable, we ought to be very careful not to assume that these men were not acting out of what they thought was right. And wrong righteousness is dangerous righteousness. Huh. Did you hear that? So here's my first point, and all said amen. I only have two points, amen? Okay. Sometimes where you come from in life can keep you from being the person God wants you to be. For these religious men, perhaps it was their religion. Perhaps it was their status. Perhaps it was because they were born into this family. For some of us gathered here today, the reason why we are not as compassionate and caring about the other as we need to is because our past stands in the way of seeing the way God wants us to see. You know, sometimes we say this to ourselves, it's not my problem. I, 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 don't, I don't need to go there. Someone else will. Have you ever, I, I wondered if they passed the man. You know, just imagine with me for a second, because it's a parable, right? <laughs> you know, imagine with me for a second. They, they're walking past the man. They go, you, you know, I, 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 the priest is going, oh, no, the, the Levite's coming up behind me. He'll take, he'll take care of this guy. Have you ever been there? I, I want to tell you a story about your pastor, okay? I'm telling a lot of stories about him, but this is a good story. You know, your pastor, on many occasions when I was working here with him here for the five years I was here, He'd be late to a meeting, and I'd say, what's going on? Oh, you know, brother, I saw this lady on the side of the 401. <laughs> and I thought to myself, someone's going to hit her, and no one's stopping. So I had to stop. 
You know, there's something wonderful about the ability to see people the way that God does. If the church can just grab a hold of this lesson that, that our eyes need to be opened in such a way that it's not just about us. Now, now I talked about how your past can hold you from being what God wants you to do. Let me talk about some of the things of the past. So, so maybe status, maybe position. Maybe some people, and I've counted this over the years, I've actually preached in a church where, where I stood up as this beautiful black man, people stood up and left. So racism still exists in the church. And I would like to say to you it happened in the States. It didn't happen in the States. It happened here in Canada. I won't mention where. You know, so sometimes prejudice can be taught in the home. It will keep you from perhaps seeing other people the way that God wants you to see. Sometimes, sometimes, sometimes the hurt that someone else causes you creates within you a resistance and binds you so much so that you can't live beyond that personal hurt and you cannot even begin to think about helping others. You know what I'm convinced about? I'm, I'm speaking deep things now. Some of us in this room tonight have had things happen in our lives that have so consumed us, so defined us, so held our souls in captivity that we cannot begin to see the needs of those around us because our need, our hurt is still primary. Now I'm speaking out of experience, not just preaching a good thought. I'm speaking out of experience. Some of us have the bondage of our past holding us so in bondage and captivity that we cannot even see the need around us. And I want to offer you the hope tonight. If God can set Stu Williams free from racist apartheid South Africa and from the death of his entire family with the exception of his older brother, I dare say to you today, that same God can bring healing and freedom to you today. And you know, you know how he brings such freedom and reveals it, is when our eyes open up. This is how I know someone's a healthy Christian. When they don't miss the person in need. You want to know how a Christian is healthy? It's not because they jump 10 feet while they're singing a praise song. It's not because they can quote a lot of scripture. You know how God says, you know someone who loves him with everything and loves their neighbors himself? They, they, they are the ones that's stopping on the 401. <laughs> they, they, they are the ones whose, whose life gets interrupted by the needs of other people. Listen, I, I, I'm preaching a hard message now, right? It's so far easier to be the kind of Christian that makes this, this is it. Yeah, right here, me and Jesus, good preaching. Okay, I got, I got juiced up. Revival was good. I'm leaving on Saturday. Don't worry. <laughs> but we leave here, and that spiritual blindness keeps the witness of this true God from moving us in compassion to the other. What holds you? What has a grip on your life? What is the big need that you have right now? And we all have them. Certainly, I do as well. What is troubling you? Or as I like to say to our people, what causes you to sigh deeply when you think about it? The, the Scriptures teaches us, and Jesus invites us to do what? To cast. Cast our cares. <laughs> Don't you love Jesus? Don't you love Jesus? 
Do you trust him tonight that he could, he could take the pain, he could take the hurt, he could begin that healing in you tonight, and, and that healing can be revealed by a church that does not pass by those who are in need? I have a suspicion that when Christ returns, he will quote Matthew 25 and say, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was unclothed, nobody brought me any clothing. And we will say, when did we do that to you, Lord? And he will say, if you've not done it unto the least of these, you have not done it unto me. Not only can our past hold us back from living lives of compassion and grace and care, but I love how Jesus refuses to answer the man's question. Have you noticed that? <laughs> Who is my neighbor? Jesus never labels the man laying down. Did you notice that? He never gives him a label. Oh, we like labels today. You know, so-and-so. Have you ever noticed how, how easy it is to, to carry stereotypes about people that you have no personal relationship with? Have you ever noticed how easy it is to become prejudicial of people that you have a distant relationship with? I want to tell you a quick story. Is that okay? Are you still with me? I still have a good few sermons left. Don't worry. I won't run out. Um, shortly after the fall of apartheid in 1994, I was hired to work in a, um, in a government department in the Western Cape in South Africa, in Cape Town. Uh, the, uh, the, the, build, the office building that I was going to work in overlooked the VNA waterfront. If you've ever been to Cape Town, I always joke, but I think it's half true, that this is what heaven's going to look like. But a place so picturesque, so beautiful, also held, and still holds to this day, some of the most ugly things that people have done towards each other in the name of God and sanctified racism. Apart that I'd just fallen, I was hired in this department. I was one of the first tanned, good-looking people to work there. And you have to understand, throughout apartheid, I saw the signs that says, you know, whites only, uh, the train system, third class, second class, first class. I could only ride third. Second, mm, a little dodgy, took your chances there. And then first class was largely unoccupied, but it was just reserved for white people. So I grew up in a culture in which I knew where I could go and where I could not go. In fact, the word apartheid means what? apartness, separation. So, in their good thinking as religious people back in the day, they sanctioned that the Word of God is good for Christian people to live separate lives. So, when apartheid fell, uh, I was thrust into a working environment where I was one of about eight people, <laughs> the first non-white person in the department. There was about eight feet between me and this lovely Afrikaner white lady. And she sat right across from me facing each other. Now, I want you to feel the tension with me. The world is changing in South Africa. <laughs> and here comes Stu Williams. 
He sits down in a room with someone that he was told he could not have, he could not share the personal breathing space with for all of his life. When I think back of it, I'm so glad I was just 90% ignorant of what was going on. Because <laughs> I don't know if I'd have the courage to be there. And we sat down and we worked together for months, for months, for months, for months, for months. And then one day she said this to me. She looked up. And she said to me, you know, you're not like the others. And I said, what? <laughs> I didn't say it, I thought it. I was a little confused. I thought, what does she mean by the others? Listen, I'm not trying to make any photos guilty here, okay? No, 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 please, there's a point to the story. Uh, I, I was confused. I, I didn't know how to respond to that, but that one comment was a gracious gift of God to me because it taught me something. It taught me that when you create enough space between yourself and someone unlike you, you can believe things about them that is just not true. But, listen to this, when you bring people together in the same space and they hear each other talking to family members, they see the pictures on the desk of the nephews and the nieces. They hear how much I love my mother. They hear my mom complaining that I didn't take my lunch that morning. When they see my ordinary humanness and they see my shared humanity, they begin to see and I begin to see in them what distance has not allowed us to see. That a man is a man is a man. Let me say this to the church. Jews and Samaritans were kept apart. Earlier in the gospel narrative, Jesus intentionally walks into Samaria, <laughs> a Samaritan village. Woo, disciples don't like that very much. Do you know throughout Jesus' ministry, he was constantly tearing down what others says was to be held up. And here's what Jesus is teaching his Jewish audience, his religious expert. Listen, when you come down that road, cross over. When you cross over, you'll find there's someone in need, someone just like you, someone that I love, someone that I died for. I want to say to the church, <laughs> the world is dying to find a way to live together and we have the answer in Christ. So, have I gone on too long, Pastor Lisa? The question that Jesus poses at the end of the scripture is, who was a neighbor? Are we the kind of people who are sitting here tonight who hear the Spirit speak to our hearts and challenge us that our profession and devotion to this wonderful Christ will lead us to not miss the people around us? In particular, those who need us, those who need God. You know, 
I love revival services. It's in my DNA. I grew up in the Church of the Nazarene. All we did was camp meetings and revival services. And I've often wondered, how many revivals do you have to be revived? <laughs> Does it work like a battery? We get charged up and then we run dry. Perhaps there is, I'm being a little sarcastic, but perhaps there is something to be said for what sustains us beyond moments like this, you know? I have seen Christians come alive when they started to get their hands dirty. I've seen churches transformed when people began to have a compassion that moved them. I've seen churches transformed by the grace of God when it has become less about my comfort and what makes me happy. No amens. And more about taking the courageous step to reach out to others. Listen, let me paint the picture as I close. It would cost the priest and the Levite a lot to bend down and help. They could have been afraid that if they help, they may be attacked themselves. I'm not suggesting that living lives of compassion does not require courage, faith, and trust. But if the church wants to make a remarkable imprint upon this world so that the world would stop saying to us that you only care about yourself and your religious lives, then it's time to live as Jesus taught us to live. And so this evening, I'm so delighted <laughs> to be here. <laughs> I'm so rejoicing in my soul as we worship, and I'm so convinced that God can just change about anybody's life because he's done it to me. That this evening, I want to invite you to respond. I'm going to invite my friend. I want to take Adam with me. You know, I, I just want to. But then I have to take Michelle and... Then a mom's going to complain and all of that. It's okay to laugh. It's still a very spiritual moment. Because <laughs> it's not just about our emotions. It's about truth, isn't it? You know, we can make many decisions just based on emotions. I felt that. Or I didn't feel have you, have you ever noticed how deceiving emotions can be? So, so I'm not saying you can't be emotional. My dad said to me before he died, he said, Stu, because I was going to every service where there was energy, I was just jumping around praising God. He says, you know, you, 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 you can have a lot of emotionalism without the spirit, but you will never have the spirit without it affecting your emotions. And so I, I want to suggest to you this evening that a clear, sober mind must consider the word that has been preached. And an honest response to his word is needed. One that says, Lord, I have heard your word, and I trust your word, and I believe your word. Here I am. Use me. Use me to be the compassionate one. Use me to make a difference for you in the kingdom. Will you do that? Let's stand together. Father God, this evening it has been without a doubt a joy and a delight to be in your presence. I thank you for the proclamation of your word. 
I thank you for the gift of songs that, that gives words to what we cannot just express on our own. I thank you for how you bring the church together. Sanctified, holy moments. <laughs> we just want to stay here, Lord, if we chose. We just want to be in these kind of moments if we chose. But, but like the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, you, you, you said after the spiritual high, we must go down. <laughs> We must go down to live amongst the people that you've called us to live amongst. And so tonight, I pray that you would give us that incredible gift of love for our neighbor. As we respond now, may your Holy Spirit unleash a compassion in the hearts of your church that cannot be rivaled by anyone or anything. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.